You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So usually I like to start out sermons with some kind of like story or uh, illustration, maybe something that'll get us warmed up, laughing a little bit, and um, give us something that we can kind of latch on to to be able to understand the Scripture better and be able to sort of open up, you know, what we're going to talk about. Maybe it focuses on a problem that we face as individuals or as a society, like some sort of illustration to just get the, the Scripture, get our minds rolling in that, that direction. Well, this morning I had trouble picking out just one illustration. Um, I couldn't just get one. This morning I've got 306 different illustrations that can go with our scripture this morning. And I know that's a very specific number, right? Like why 306? I will tell you why, because 306 is the number of days that we have had in 2020. And I feel like every day of 2020 is a great illustration for the passage of Scripture we're about to talk about this morning. And good news is, right, that that means there's only 60-ish days left in 2020, right? Don't forget it's a leap year. We had to stick that extra day in on 2020, right? So we have 366 days this year. We've been through 306 of them. So let me just go through a little review this morning. 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? We uh, started out, if you remember, the U.S., we dropped some bombs on Iraq and retaliation from their attack against the U.S. Embassy. That happened. We also had a legendary uh, basketball legend Kobe Bryant die in a tragic accident. And then there was also an impeachment hearing. And that was just January. Remember how much fun that was? Like, remember back in January, we were also like, ah, you know, just, just innocent, right? But then fast forward and March comes along and the whole time between January and March, this virus that we'd sort of been hearing about had crept closer and closer and closer to us until in March, we start to see videos of NBA games that are canceled and fans just walking out of games. The NBA is canceled. The NHL is canceled. We, we see that the stock market has a record low, the, most, the lowest it's been since 1987. We see that uh, many Americans, many of us just begin having to sit at home, just kind of staring at each other, doing nothing. You know? and, and in this, people begin losing jobs. Many people are getting sick. The Olympics were canceled. Only three other times in modern history have the Olympics been canceled, and all three of those times were because we were at a world war. So this time we have a whole new thing in that the Olympics are canceled for a virus. We see protests and counter-protests being held against, you know, these lockdown orders and mask-wearing orders, and that just brings us through the end of the first kind of quarter, the first half of the year. In May, videos surface of, of, of the death of Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd. And these spark huge protests, not just in America, but worldwide. And many of these protests we see get very violent. We see over, um, we've seen just on the weather circuit, if you just want to talk to a weatherman, we've seen 11 hurricanes, four of which have been above a category three. There have been 28 named storms this year. Usually the named storms are an average of 12. So even the weather has been crazy this year. And then we have seen over 1 million lives claimed by the COVID-19 virus. And did I mention that it's also an election year? 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? And as we go back through that kind of memory lane that we've had, I think if we had to take 2020 and sum it up in just two words, I think the two words I would choose are strife 
and anxiety, right? Friction, tension, and then anxiety. So we just have sort of an internal tension. We have an external tension, strife and anxiety. If you're watching the news and it didn't make you anxious, it probably made you angry, right? And this is what Paul comes in to talk about in Philippians chapter four. So we've spent seven weeks now in this chapter or in this book, and Paul's beginning to kind of wrap up his letter. So we're sort of in his like concluding chapter here, and we're going to finish it all up next week. But right here in chapter seven of this book, which is sort of a glorified thank you letter. If you remember, I said chapter seven is week seven of this book, chapter four. Uh, it's sort of a glorified thank you note. Paul is writing the church in Philippi to thank them for their gift, their donation that they sent to him. And so now as he's gone through his letter, when we get to chapter four, Paul gets very personal and he starts calling out some people by name, which is not something that Paul often does in this way. And so let's read it and, and start in verse two of chapter four. It says right here, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, which we don't know who this true companion is that Paul's speaking of, but he's kind of writing directly to that person right now. He says, I, I ask you also, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh-oh. We got some strife, right? Right here, Paul calls out two ladies who are having some kind of fight, and we don't know much about them, and we certainly don't know much about their disagreement. Maybe they were disagreeing about how to distribute the funds in their church. Maybe they were having a disagreement about theology, and, you know, an early kind of, as the early church is still taking shape, they were disagreeing about something that maybe Jesus had said. Maybe they were disagreeing about how much they submit to the Roman government. Maybe they were having an argument about masks or no masks or which lives matter or who to vote for in the election. We don't know, but it's crazy to us to imagine that in this day, in Paul's day, that Christians argued with each other, right? Like, I know it's going to be a leap for us to go back like almost 2,000 years ago to when Paul wrote this letter. And believe it or not, though, Christians argued with each other in Paul's day, which certainly it's hard for us to understand because we don't have that going on in 2020, do we? Of course we do. I feel like as I went through this, man, the passage that Paul is writing about is just so relatable. Even though it's from so long ago, we see that we're still dealing with many of the same problems as we get to this, this dis disagreement between these two people in the church. And again, we don't know about them. We don't know about their disagreement, but it seems that the whole church of Philippi knows what it is because Paul is able to reference it without giving the details, which leads me to think everybody knows about this disagreement. And probably other people are getting pulled into it. And maybe people have started to take sides like we've often seen in many churches today. And so Paul talks to him. And here's the only details we have about these two ladies, Iodia and Syntyche. He says that they have labored side by side with him in the gospel. So these are not just church members. These are leaders in the church. These two ladies, Paul has worked with side by side on the front lines of ministry. So a little thing we can take from that, a little piece of truth there, is that Christians can disagree with one another, like we've seen these two ladies do, and still be in ministry together. That we can disagree with one another, but still work towards a common goal. Clearly that's happening here because we hear they're disagreeing, and yet Paul says they've worked with him side by side. Then at the end of this little section, Paul says that their names are in the book of life. So when we get to the end of history and Jesus is sitting on his throne and opens up the book of life, the, the list of kind of guests for the party, and if your name is on this list, you get into the party, 
Paul is saying that these two ladies who are having a disagreement, that their name is in the book of life, that they will go on to eternity with one another. And so right here, another little tidbit we get from Paul is that Christians can not only disagree, but they can disagree and still be Christians. That two Christians can think two different things and yet still be in eternity together. I think this is something that maybe we have begun to lose a little bit in our day and age, that we can work together, we can end up in heaven together, but not always agree together. And you see this played out in many ways. I don't need to tell you where we've seen this out, but I hope that if nothing else this morning, just reading about this argument and the way Paul talks about these two leaders in ministry who are going to be in heaven together, I hope these verses might blow up this myth that all Christians must always think the same way. I think this should at least make us skeptical of any statement or message we would see or hear that would say, I don't know how you could be a Christian and then vote blank. Because clearly we hear right here that here's two people that think differently, but they're both going to be in heaven. And so as we approach like our, our election year, like as we've gotten up to this point and tomorrow we're gonna, or, or Tuesday, I guess we're going to have a vote and we're going to hear about the results of that vote. Let's be very careful as believers how we respond to that, how we talk to one another about the, the election in our country after it has taken place. Because here Paul is talking about Christians who can disagree. We have to learn to be Christians that can disagree and yet still be united with one another. And so Paul, his, his goal, his, his goal for them is that they would agree, right? He's saying they're, they're having a disagreement, but I want to see them agree with each other, which is a huge theme in the New Testament. And I want to unpack this idea of unity in the New Testament, but also be clear that I don't think it means always thinking 100% the same, always falling in line and just kind of being like these robots that hold all the same opinions, all the same beliefs. And yet we're supposed to fight for unity with one another. So again, this is a huge theme in the New Testament. Jesus prayed this for us the night before he died. Here's what he said in John 17. He said, I don't ask for these only. Talking about the disciples with him at that last supper table. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may know that you have sent me. How's the world going to know that Jesus came from God? They're going to see unity among us, his believers. Peter writes about this in the New Testament. The disciple Peter, he writes a letter. And in 1 Peter 3.8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, he follows this idea of unity in mind. He doesn't say have unity of mind in opinions, in politics, and all these things. He says, no, have unity in mind with sympathy and brotherly love with a tender heart and a humble mind. That's the kind of unity we are to find. Paul talks about this. When Paul says that word, he, he says, I, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree with one another. The word that he uses there, he's actually already used in Philippians. He used it in the second chapter of Philippians. He said this in verse 2 of his letter. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That phrase right there is the same in the Greek as it is in chapter 4 when he says, agree with one another. He says, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the agreement we are to have. That's the same mind we are to share. 
a mind of humility, a mind of love. Can we have differences? Sure. But what we put first is love and humility. These things that we look throughout the Bible, we look at this theme of unity in the New Testament. I challenge you just to maybe go home and do a search, find a, a Bible app or an online like concordance and just look for unity, look for togetherness in the New Testament. And I will, I'll show you that you'll find in that it's always coupled with love. It's always coupled with humility. And so being united doesn't mean that we can't have differences. It just means that we place love in front of those differences. Paul uses this, uh, this same word that he talked about in Philippians and agree, and then also talking about how uh, we need to be of the same mind. He also uses it in Romans. But in Romans, he uses a different word again, or we usually have a translation that's a little different from that. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That word harmony is the same that is also translated as agree and of the same mind. Now, I don't know if we have music people in here, but in my old like high school, like back in the day, I was a band kid. I know, complete nerd. I was a band kid, but we would talk about things like harmony. Harmony is not two people playing the same note. Harmony is two people playing two different notes. It's when you bring different notes and different spots on the scale and play them together so that they have a new richer sound. So we could argue that, this, that Paul is talking about this agreement, this unity of mind is taking differences and putting them in unity so that there's a richer sound. That's what I believe Paul is talking about. That is the unity I believe we are to fight for as the church. It doesn't always mean sharing the same beliefs and opinions, but it does mean placing one another in front of ourselves, placing love and humility first. This year, probably one of my, like, the highlights of my 2020 is, this year I've been able to walk uh, with three couples. My wife and I have walked with three couples in premarital counseling. Um, one couple's gotten married, and we're walking with two more that are doing it right now. And we always cover some different topics, and one of the topics that we cover is fighting or communication and how to communicate within a marriage. And we talk about how when you're fighting in a marriage, when you have a disagreement in a marriage, your goal is not like it was before you were married. Before you're married, your goal in an argument might be me first. But we talk about how in a marriage, your goal of an argument should be the marriage first. It's not how can I get my way, it's how can I strengthen our marriage. I think that is great advice just for us as believers together. It's not going to be about how can I get my way, how can I convince somebody else that I am right and they need to adopt my life and my principles but rather, how can I fight for both of us? How can I fight for the church? Because the end goal is loving Jesus and loving others. And if we can stand together on that, I think we can put a lot of differences behind. So our goal is now not fighting for my way or my beliefs to be adopted, but fighting for the church to be strengthened. And so this is what Paul tackles when he tackles this first paragraph here is dealing with strife. And so he gives just some little tidbits here. We're going to unpack a few of these of how he says to go about it. He enlists the help of other people in the church. If you caught that in verse 3, he says, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women. We don't know who the true companion is, but Paul knew. It's a person who maybe is, is traveling with this letter, is maybe going to communicate this letter, or just one of the main leaders of the church. We don't exactly know who, but he's saying, I'm asking you to, to help them out to walk alongside them. So Paul is echoing Jesus's words and saying, let's bring other believers into the matter to help guide them. And Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 16. He says, if you have an issue with a fellow believer, with a fellow Christian, first go to them and address it. And then he says, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. Jesus says, gather more believers with you to go and talk with these believers. That's one way that we can go about strife in our lives. It's going to our fellow believers, not to talk about somebody behind their back, but to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you give me your opinion? Can you help me out? Can you talk me through this? And maybe even taking it a step further and saying, would you be willing, the person I'm arguing with, the person I have a disagreement with, would you be willing to bring in this third party that we both mutually know, that we both mutually agree is a fellow believer and a good Christian with us? That's how Paul recommends we handle our disagreements, is that we bring more believers in with it, and it's exactly what Jesus told us to do. So how do we weather these disagreements as Christians? We do it in community. We gather good community around us, and together we work through these things, putting love and humility first. That's paragraph one. And Paul's going to give us more tips on dealing with strife later, but he, he jumps now to talk about anxiety, right? So paragraph one, we talk about strife. Paragraph two, we talk about anxiety. Something that if, if we were in 2019, just last year, I feel like there was sermons that we were talking about, about the rise of anxiety, of how we've seen a rise in mental health issues of anxiety and depression. I've seen it especially among the young people that I work with, but it's across the board that already we were dealing with this collective anxiousness, and then this virus plops down on top of us. And then I feel with that, just anxiety can just shoot off of the charts. Just the thoughts of, will I be okay? Will my family be okay? Will my job be okay? And so here we are in 2020 dealing with these things. Well, 2,000-ish years ago, Paul is dealing with it with this church in Philippi. And here's what he has to say about anxiety. Verse, chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. That's what Paul has to say about anxiety, right? Like that is, that's what you got for us, Paul. Like don't be anxious. That's, that's just what you're going to say. Just don't do it. And, and you want to say to this like, yeah, but really, Paul? Like have you heard about the murder hornets, Paul? Like I know back where you're at, like you don't have that. But have you heard about this virus that everybody is catching and all the strife we have in us and, and this election that's about to happen? Have you heard about these things, Paul? You're going to tell me don't be anxious? Where are you coming from? Well, Paul's coming from prison. Paul is coming from the anxiety of being a prisoner. That's where Paul is. As he is writing this letter, it is likely that he is chained to a Roman guard. He doesn't know if he's going to live through this prison sentence. He doesn't know if it will end with his execution or not. And we get another little tidbit earlier that Paul is paying for his own rent as he's a prisoner here. He's paying for his food. He's paying for his lodging. That's where this gift from Philippi came into him. Paul doesn't know if he's going to be able to afford to stay a prisoner or if he's going to live. Paul understood anxiety. And so Paul writes to us in the midst of what must be an anxious time for him. And he says, do not be anxious about anything. And then just to take it a step further, he jumps down a few verses. Verse 4, he says, But rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is what Paul is saying from prison. Don't be anxious, but rejoice. And let your reasonableness, your, your calmness, your cool-headedness, let that be seen by everyone. These are more words that Paul uses that echo Jesus. Jesus has a great passage in the Sermon on the Mount about anxiety. In Matthew 6, 25, he starts out saying, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is life more than food? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he skips down to verse 32 and he says, for the Gentiles, the non-believers seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Jesus talks about anxiety. Paul talks about anxiety and they always put it back into the realm of God. They always put it back into the lap of our father. So Paul, in the way of dealing with anxiety, here's how he continues on. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is Paul's antidote for anxiety? It's prayer. It's taking what we are anxious about and giving it to God. He says, pray with supplication, which is something that I realized studying for this this week. Like I've always heard of like, oh, prayer and supplication. I realized I didn't really know what supplication meant. Like I've just always heard it with prayer. I'm like, I think it's just like a fancier prayer. Like you can pray, but then you can pray with supplication. Like that's how I want to pray, right? It's just kind of a church term that we don't ever really use. And so it is, it basically is like a way of praying, but it's more like a request with humility, Supplication would be a a humble request, saying like, I don't deserve this, but I'm requesting it of you. So prayer and supplication is telling God what we are anxious about and humbly requesting that he help us with that, even though we don't necessarily deserve that help. It's offering it to God and humbly asking him for his help. And then Paul says to do this with thanksgiving. How do we take murder hornets and COVID and all of this stuff and and still have thankfulness? Well, that's what Paul pushes us towards is to pray with thanksgiving, to remember in prayer what we have to be thankful about. Of Yes, there's this virus coming, but but I, I still have a life right now. I'm still alive right now. I still have family right now. I still have beyond all of that, a creator who knows what I'm dealing with. A creator who made me and sent his son to die for me so that when I die, even if it happens from this virus or a murder hornet or who knows what, when I die, I get to go to eternity and be with him. So we offer our anxiety up with prayer, with with supplication, but with thankfulness saying, but God, thank you that in the midst of all of this trouble, I know at the end, I will have peace because at the end, I will be with you. And that's where Paul takes it. He says, all of this will lead us to peace, the peace of God. It's not peace from us. You don't have to drum it up inside you. It comes from our creator. It comes from God, the God of peace. And God will give us that peace. And it's not just any peace. It is the kind of peace that he says passes all understanding, that we won't understand how in the midst of this trauma we can have peace. But we know it must come from God because he's the God of peace. That we will understand that whatever it is we're going through, that we're making it through. Maybe it's not easy, but we're still walking forward. We won't understand how we know that peace comes from God. So Paul's antidotes for when we get worrisome is to pray and seek out God's peace and that that peace will then guard us. Just like a Roman soldier is guarding Paul, peace will stand in front of us. God's peace will be with us. And so this is how Paul addresses paragraph one, strife, paragraph two, anxiety. That's how Paul addresses, I think, 2020. That's his his antidotes for us. For strife, put love first and enlist the community of other believers. For anxiety, we are to rejoice 
We're to pray with thanksgiving. We're to give it back to God. So then I feel like on top of that, his solutions for anxiety and strife, now Paul skips to paragraph three, which I think is an antidote for both of these things, for both strife and anxiety. He talks about them both individually, and then I think he's giving a solution to both of those things together. And here's what he says. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How do we battle both anxiety and strife in our lives? How do we have an antidote for 2020? Paul gives it right here. He says, fill your minds with whatever is true, whatever is of honor, whatever is justice, whatever is pure, whatever is loveliness, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, fill your mind with that stuff. Don't fill your mind with everything else. Fill it with these attributes. The opposite of these last things, if we looked at just what Paul talks about there of, of truth and honor and justice and all that, if we wanted to find the opposite of these things, we can just go back into the last chapter. In Philippians 3.19, I don't think I have it on the screen, but you can maybe look backwards in your, your scripture. Paul talks about people who are living as enemies of Christ. And he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people, these enemies of the cross are not focused on honor and purity and truth and justice. Instead, they're focused on earthly things. Their God is their appetite. Whatever they're hungry for, that's what they're going to go after. That's what they're going to worship. And then they're going to be proud of their shame. They're going to display their sins and say, hey, check out my sin. I'm proud of it. They're going to glory in their shame. These people fill their minds with things of earth. But Paul calls believers in Christ to fill our minds with the things of heaven. Truth and justice and purity and honor and excellency, all of these things which can be found in the person of Jesus. These are all attributes of the Son of God that we can see him on, put on display when he walked our earth with us. So Paul's final antidote, I think, to strife and anxiety is our mindset, our focus. In fact, if you were to take your little scripture journal and just lay it out like page for page, it's about eight pages is what we have for the book of Philippians. And if you took all those pages, which I did, and you took a picture of them, which we're going to put on the back screen, and you can just see the whole book at a glance. I don't expect you to be able to read the tiny little letters on it, but right there, that's the whole book of Philippians. If you went through the book of Philippians, which I did, and then focus in on every time that Paul talks about our focus or our mindset or the way that we think, and you highlighted those places, you'd find that they're all right here. Uh, maybe you can't see so well with the pink. But all of those places are times in this letter where Paul has talked about our thinking, our mindset. It's a huge focus in this letter. If you then compared that, the ratio of times that these words come up in this book to other books, you're going to find that Philippians, this is a huge focus for it, even compared to other books of the Bible, that Paul really focuses in on our focus in the book of Philippians. And so right there we see that, that Paul is making this big theme of what we think about as Christians, of what we fill our minds with, fill our thoughts with as believers of Christ. And so the question I think we are left asking now at this point in the book of Philippians is, are these the things that I'm focused on? Is this what you're thinking about? 
Or is it often the opposite? Instead of whatever is true, are we often focused on lies? Instead of whatever is, is pure, are we often focused on what is shameful? Instead of justice, what is not just? Instead of purity, what is impure? What are we filling our minds with? And is it possible that if those things are not the things Paul has talked about just now, is it possible that the filling of our minds with those things have led us to more strife and more anxiety? I think not only is our focus on the right things, the things of Jesus, not only is that an antidote for our strife and our anxiety, but I believe it's a preventative measure as well. The more I'm focused on the things that Jesus did and the characteristics he demonstrated, the less I'm focused on me, the less I'm focused on me versus you, the less I'm focused on the things that scare me, and the more I am focused on Jesus. So another way to look at these verses and this, you know, kind of antidote that Paul gives us would just be to go total 90s youth ministry, okay? As a youth pastor, like, I know where my heritage lies. Like, we've tried to forget a lot of 90s youth ministry and, you know, DC Talk and Jesus Freak and cargo shorts and all that stuff. It was a blast of a time. We've seen a lot of mistakes that youth ministry made in that time as well. But a huge theme in 90s youth ministry when I was growing up as a teenager was be careful what you put in your mind. And so that's where like DC Talk was amazing for us because, you know, we weren't allowed to listen to all the other secular bands and all because that stuff would poison our minds and what goes in must come out, right? And it's going to change everything. We've kind of strayed away a lot from that talk, you know, in 90s youth ministry because we just felt like it was maybe a little too controlling. We're putting too many rules on things and all of this stuff. But I think there's something good in that idea of what are we filling our minds with? And I don't mean you as adults, like I'm not going to tell you to get out your phones and scroll through your playlists and find anything, you know, with the explicit E next to it and delete all that. That's not the realm I'm going. But maybe more so, what are you filling your minds with in terms of what are you digesting throughout the week? How much time are you spending on social media? A place that if you're looking at social media, I'll just be honest, it is hard to find whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. It is hard to find that on social media. If you're absorbing a lot of major news from either or any network, I would say, again, it's going to be hard on those networks, those news stations, to find whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. And yet this is often what we are absorbing, what we are stewing in, what we are allowing to guide our thinking. And I would argue that it's often the opposite of what Paul is talking about. And so I don't know about you guys, but I decided just this week as I've been going through this sermon that I need a break from that stuff. I need, I'm going to be on a social media detox conveniently right before the election happens so that I get to miss out on what everybody else has to say about it. Would you like to join me? It's going to be fantastic. Because I find in this stuff, like yesterday, like I got on and just, I felt like I just had a dark cloud over my day. And it was a great day. There's no reason for this, but I just allowed this stuff to begin kind of poisoning my mindset rather than focusing on what Jesus has done for us. And so to wrap it all up, I, I want to talk a little bit. There's a field of study in uh, sports psychology about self-talk, the stuff that, that athletes tell themselves as they compete. And, and what they've found in this, in this study of, of it's this whole field of sports psychology is that um, the kind of motivation that an athlete gives themselves, the little things that they say to themselves, has a huge impact on their athletic performance. If they're about to get up on like a complicated, like physical task, a, a task of skill, an instructional phrase is helpful. So if they're about to knock a ball off a tee, it's good for them to repeat to themselves, bend your knees before they do that. 
If it's a task of endurance, they find that inspirational phrases are helpful for maybe a marathon runner that is going to say things like, keep going, don't give up. I think that we can use what they've found in in performance enhancement for these athletes of self-talk. I think we as Christians can use that self-talk ourselves. That we can find little places, maybe Bible verses that we just recite to ourselves. You know, just maybe the mantra of John the Baptist of let him increase and let me decrease. Or, Or a psalm that says, I have nothing to fear because my God is with me. Find these moments of self-talk, and maybe you need a practical one, maybe you need one for endurance, but maybe right before you're walking into that meeting, you just say to yourself, love first. Maybe as you're going through the marathon, that is life, and things are closing in on you, you just remind yourself, Jesus loves me. And so I think we can begin employing those things as a practical measure of what Paul talks about, of just trying to fill our minds with the right stuff. We've got to be careful of what we're putting in it, but we've also got to be careful of of what we're putting in it, allowing Jesus to put the right things in it and trying to keep the world from putting the wrong things in it. And if we can do all that, if we can find these things to think on of truth and honor and justice and love and and what is commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, if we can find all of these attributes demonstrated by Jesus and begin filling our minds with that, I feel like we're gonna have a better chance against strife, a better chance against fear, I think we've got a better shot at joy of the real joy that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 4 through 5, when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't miss that last phrase, that Jesus is at hand. Paul's saying at some point he's going to return or at some point you're going to die and go to see him. The Lord is at hand. And in that, we can rejoice. And the fact that Jesus is near, we can rejoice because he's bigger than any murder hornet. He's bigger than any virus. He's bigger than any political candidate because Jesus is at hand, we can rejoice. Because you are in his hands, you can rejoice. Because if you've given your life, your sins over to him and confessed him as Lord of your life, you are in his hands, not just for today, but for tomorrow and all of eternity. And in that, we can rejoice. In that, we will find no anxiety. In that, we will find no fear. We will find the peace of God. Let me pray. God, we thank you that even in a year like this, even in a trying time like this, you are present with us. And we thank you for the words of Paul that act as a guide to us in these times. And so God, as as the year continues and as things may get crazier and not easier, I pray, Lord, that we could fill our minds with the things of Christ, that we could surround our lives with the people of Christ. And in all of this, God, we could find your peace. It's in your name I pray.